Dear listener, we hope that you've been enjoying the variety of podcasts that we have on our network. Now is your opportunity to help us by telling us a little more about you. Please visit jcastnetwork.org survey and complete our listener survey so that we can learn more about you and your listening habits. Again, please visit jcastnetwork.org survey. Thanks so much. You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit mikeknopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Okay. Uh, all right, so we have not only Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but we also have Jacob's children. Genesis chapter 47, uh, number 11, text number 11, page 4. Okay? With me, there's a lot of stuff, I know. Um, okay, Jacob's children, the children of Israel. We have come, they told Pharaoh, to sojourn in this land, Lagur Ba'aretz, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, the famine being severe in the land of Canaan. Pray then, let your servants stay in the region of Goshen. Okay, so this is when Joseph had already been in Egypt. He's the chief advisor to Pharaoh uh, by a, a miraculous turn of events. And there's a famine in the land of Canaan. And to make a long story short, all of Joseph's brothers end up coming to live in Egypt, right? Uh, uh, an indefinite situation, right? They end up being there for several hundred years. Depending on your calculation of these things is either something like 200 years or 400 years, right? So... And we'll see that in Exodus chapter uh, 1, so text number 12. Uh, the, sorry, I didn't bring you verse 7, but verse 7 is um, that whole generation died, right? Uh, in other words, that we, we know that, uh, that uh, Jacob's children, the children of Israel, live in Egypt the rest of their lives, right? And then their children live in Egypt the rest of their lives, right? And their children live in Egypt the rest of their lives. This isn't like we're just hanging out here for, for a couple of weeks until things blow over. Right? This is, we're moving here. Okay? And then a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And this is the central story of, uh, of, the, uh, of the Jewish narrative. But what I wanted to bring you was not only this story. Because if, if all we say is, okay, you know, we have this experience of being slaves in Egypt. We were immigrants in Egypt, and then we were slaves, and then we were redeemed, whatever. Right? I actually think that that uh, doesn't give a full enough picture of how Judaism, how the, how the Bible, and how Jewish tradition views uh, the relationship between our history and our self-understanding and the immigrant experience, right? But this is the central one. So a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph, Joseph being Jacob's son who uh, had, had uh, saved Egypt from famine, right? That's, by the way, um, a, a, a worthwhile thing to point out if we just sort of like fast forward to the, to the modern context um, is that um, according to uh, a wide array of sociologists and economists. Uh, Im- immigrants are um, an incredible driving force in a country's economy. Uh, uh, in American history, that has been uh, that has been overwhelmingly true, and it's still true today. Um, so, uh, um, on the negative side of it, uh, it means that. Uh, uh, immigrants, including undocumented immigrants, uh, contribute 
significantly more in taxes than they take in social services. So they are actually a net benefit to society. They tend to do jobs that people don't want to do. But immigrants are also enterprising people. They tend to be, right? It takes a lot to uproot yourself from one country and move to another country, right? So um, much of this country, including from its very founding, was built on the, uh, uh, on the ingenuity uh, of, uh, of, of immigrants, right? And every American, we know this, right? Every American, uh, in, in, uh, except for Native Americans, uh, were at some point immigrants to this land. And even if you go back into ancient history, Native Americans too were immigrants to this land, right? So everybody were immigrants to this land. We all, our only origin is Africa, okay? So that's, that's the only place we all come from. Um, uh, so, but anyway, so I, I, I mentioned that to say that, okay, the, the story of Joseph uh, saving Egypt um, is actually a pretty stereotypical immigrant story in a lot of ways. So a new king rose over Egypt, but anyway, a new king arises and doesn't remember Joseph, doesn't remember the fact that uh, this foreigner had saved Egypt. And he said to his people, look, the Israelite people are much new, too numerous for us. Or in other words, I don't remember the good that these people do, did, but I do know that there's a lot of them now, and that makes me a little bit nervous. And the, the subtext, of course, is that they haven't assimilated into the broader culture, right? They're, they're not, we know that they're not Egyptians, they're not acting like Egyptians, right? The midrash on this is that uh, uh, um, at the very least, they kept their Jewish, their Hebrew names, so they had their own sort of uh, sense of distinct identity. Um, but uh, if, if you um, adopt this pa passage and uh, apply it to the book of Esther, where Haman says a similar kind of thing to um, Achashverosh, he says it in more uh, uh, explicit terms. He says that there is a, uh, a people spread out and dispersed among your population um, who have laws and customs of their own and don't follow the king's laws. Right? That's, I think, the subtext of what, uh, of what Pharaoh is saying here, is that um, this, is a, this is a distinct foreign population living among us. Right? They, haven't, they, haven't, they haven't learned Egyptian. Right? They're not taking Egyptian names. Right? Um, let us deal shrewdly with them so that they may not increase. Otherwise, in the event of war, they may join our enemies in fighting against us and rise from the ground. Right? In other words, because they're distinct, we don't know if we can trust them. We don't know if they're for us or against us, right? That is a, a, a classic anxiety about immigrant populations, right? If they're not assimilating into the dominant culture, sometimes there's a fear about where their loyalties lie, right? So, you, and, and I hear that all the time uh, in, uh, in, in discussions about, about the Muslim population uh, in America today. I was having a conversation with somebody just before this uh, about that, because I don't know where their loyalties lie, right? Uh, but what's, I think, worth pointing out, and what I pointed out to her is that, um, is that people have said that about every minority immigrant group that has come to America throughout American history, right? People said it about the Catholics, people said it about the Jews, and if we get to it, I'll show you uh, uh, some places in, in American Jewish history where that was uh, a dominant motif in the national conversation. Yeah. Well, what's interesting, I mean, that's a more complicated story because uh, despite what um, our Secretary of Housing and Urban Development says, uh, the uh, uh, African-Americans weren't exactly immigrant uh, immigrants to America. They were... Uh, 
forced, yeah, forced immigrants, uh, which is, I guess, a different, uh, a, di a different sort of thing. Um, now, but you do hear that in some ways about um, about the African American population. I want to be very careful about how I say this. Um, there's all sorts of, uh, I mean, even black people say it about other black people. Where Bill Cosby uh, was uh, in a lot of uh, African American circles lambasted for uh, for statements like. Um, you know, people need to pull up their pants and start dressing, you know, like, like respectable people, right? That his whole, the whole premise of the Cosby show was that, um, was that, uh, uh, black people should be indistinguishable from, from white people and that's how to be accepted more broadly into society. Um, you see it in the different ways that, uh, uh, policing happens in communities of color than in, uh, than in, uh, uh white communities. So it, it's, it's not said explicitly, I think, in the same kind of way about um, uh, about black people. Although, if we were living in the uh, in the post Reconstruction era, uh, the early in the early twenty into the early twentieth century, um, I actually think that you, we might we might think about that in a different way. I think that that uh, the language might have been slightly different, but the force of it was very similar. That this is a distinct population. That is uh, that ought to be dealt with in a different way than the dominant population ought to be controlled rather than uh, than uh, brought into the collective enterprise, um, and, uh, and uh, um, the loyalty question is an interesting one. I mean, I would say that um, that the loyalty question is wrapped up in the in the involuntary experience of involuntary servitude. So you know, a lot of the um, a lot of the uh, Jim Crow laws and anti-black violence uh, uh, was rooted in uh, the the language and laws of the slave system, uh, in which uh, the primary responsibility of a black person was to obey their master. Right, so it wasn't even a matter of loyalty to the system; it was a matter of loyalty to white people. Right, so it actually, it's even more explicit in some ways, I think, about black people. Right, right. Yeah, Gary. I'm listening to you. I'm just going to listen more. What's interesting is um, this is he in um, the musical Hamilton. It's a what? It's a he in the musical Hamilton. Hamilton himself was on, on multiple occasions in the musical labeled the immigrant. Right, yeah. What's, what, and I, I remember, I, I can't back this up beyond what I learned in my high school history class, and I haven't seen the play. Um, but uh, my, my high school history teacher said that the uh, clause in the Constitution about the qualifications for the presidency, um, the president has to be a native-born American, uh, except for at the time of the drafting of the Constitution. And my high school history teacher told me that, that was in case Hamilton wanted to run for president. Right. Yeah. In the West Indies, right? In the Caribbean, yeah. Okay, um, all right, we already looked at uh, Exodus chapter 22, verse 20, um, but I think it's, it's worth looking, so just to remind you, you shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. Okay, so the shift here is that Judea, the, the Bible takes the historical, or if you want to say mythological, experience of uh, of. Uh, immigration and the vulnerability of immigration 
and the oppression that sometimes comes with, through that vulnerability enshrines it into law. What Rabbi Held said in the session, this was, I think, the, uh, the, the chiddish, uh, what's the English word for chiddish? The, the, the novel idea uh, that, uh, that, that he uh, suggested to me that I hadn't learned before is that many ancient law systems that predated the Bible uh, or that were contemporaneous to the Bible had special protections for widows and orphans, sometimes for the poor too. That was not new. What was new to the Bible, the re- maybe you can even say the revolution of the Bible, was to extend those same protections to gayrim, to foreign immigrants, to sojourners. Right? That was the shift of the Bible. So in other words, that's actually, it's not just sort of like an ancillary feature to biblical sense of justice or to Jewish self-understanding. In some ways, it was the driving force for the construction of Israelite society, that we would build a society, it would be distinguished from other societies because it offers this particular protection. And it offers this particular protection because of our historical experience or our understanding of our historical experience. So Rashi, uh, I, I thought that this was just worthwhile to see how, how Jewish uh, tradition classically understands this, uh, this law. So oppression here means do not vex him with words, referring to the fact that he is a stranger. Right? In other words, when somebody, when, an, when a foreigner comes to live with you, don't constantly remind that person in word or in deed that they are a foreigner. Treat them like somebody who is living with you. Treat them like one of your own. Right, so this law actually now, if you apply this to contemporary Jewish law where ger means convert, right? Uh, in, in contemporary Jewish law, this means that somebody who converts to Judaism, you're not supposed to always be reminding them about the fact that they used to be a, a non-Jew, right? If they want to talk about it, they can, but you shouldn't say, hey, remember back when you used to eat bacon cheeseburgers, right? That's meant to be oppression. Um, well, you can say that to a lot of Jews too, so what are you going to do? Um, Okay, and uh, nor so that's that's uh, uh, that's uh, uh, wronging a stranger and then oppressing him uh, means robbing him of money. Okay, so that's actually enshrined in Jewish law, right? Um, it is easy for a native population to take advantage of immigrants. Right? We see this still in our society all the time. Um, it, uh, it's uh, um, uh, immigrant populations are often reliant on the people and systems of the country uh, that they come to, which means that they have a high degree of trust of the systems and people of the country that they're, that they're coming to by, by necessity, right? Um, and so it's easy to take advantage of those people. It's easier to rob an immigrant than it is to rob a native person. That's the presumption of the law, right? And so there's a special provision of the law to say, do not, despite the temptation, despite the ease of it, and despite the fact that you might think that because they are immigrants, they have fewer rights than the native-born, don't rob them. And then, kigerim ha'item, for you are strangers. If you vex him, he can vex you by saying to you, you also descend from strangers. In other words, remember that his situation is not unique to him. Even though you might have been born in the land in which you live, that doesn't mean that you aren't an immigrant too. 
or that your father wasn't, or his father wasn't, or if you want to go all the way back to Abraham, go back to Abraham, but Abraham was an immigrant. Do not reproach your fellow man for a fault, which is also yours. I think fault is a little bit of a strong English translation here. I don't think he really means fault uh, for a for uh, a perceived shortcoming or something like that. That's also yours. Um, and here, Rashi says this explicitly, wherever ger occurs in scripture, it signifies a person who has not been born in that land where he is living, but has come from another country to sojourn there. So he says it explicitly, right? It's not talking about converts here. It's talking about immigrants. Okay, Abraham Ibn, Ibn Ezra, a, uh, a medieval uh, Sephardic commentator, says uh, about this passage, um, and a stranger. Once the stranger accepts not to worship idolatry, you cannot oppress him in your country and land because you are more powerful than him. Okay, so what Ibn Ezra adds here, that I think is important to the conversation, is contrary to what uh, Rashi celebrated when it came to uh, Jacob. So Jacob uh, promoted the fact that he didn't assimilate into Levan's society. What Ibn Ezra is saying is that uh, it is fair to, uh, to, um, to expect a certain level of assimilation from foreign sojourners. Right? They have to accept the basic premise of the legal system. Right? The basic premise of the Jewish legal system is that there's one God. Right? That's why the first commandment starts with, Anochi Adonai Elohecha. Right? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Right? So if it, what Ibn Ezra says is that if an immigrant is prepared to accept that, then you treat them like a native person. Okay? He doesn't say what should happen if an immigrant is not prepared to accept that. But I actually think that, that I mean, in, in the ancient world, that actually that might have been a, a pretty high bar. In Ibn Ezra's society, that actually was not a very high bar. Most of Ibn Ezra's world at that time um, accepted the premise of not worshiping idols. Ibn Ezra lived in the, in the Muslim world, right? He's actually in some ways reflecting the law of Muslim society, where you were more or less, uh, people were more or less treated uh, the same if they were uh, uh, Dimi, people of the book, right? Um, uh, but, uh, but, but Christians, Jews, Muslims, uh, according to um, most streams of classical Jewish law, are presumed not to be idolaters. Um, sometimes Christians may be, depending on, you know, this is a more gray area, um, uh, because there's, because there's statues and, uh, and, um, uh, uh, icons and things like that in, in uh, various aspects of Christian worship, so it depends on how you understand those things. Uh, but in, in any event, from Ibn Ezra's context, I think, uh, it's fair to presume that this is not actually, he doesn't see that as a very high bar of, uh, of acceptance of the terms of the society in which you live, right? Um, Right. So listen, it's so there's a couple of things that I would say about that. I think that's very astute. Um, so the first is, uh, despite you know the fact that we're trying to draw analogies from ancient medieval law to the contemporary uh, situation, um, there's there's a point at which the analogies don't hold. Uh, so uh, the 
Ibn Ezra's world, the ancient world, um, there was no distinction between civil law and religious law. Um, there was no distinction between your national identity and your religious identity. Um, those were intertwined things, usually. Christianity uh, in Islam, to a certain degree, uh, shatters that. Um, uh, really, Christianity does uh, before Islam does. Um, shatters that, makes Christianity sort of a global phenomenon, not, a, not particular to a, a certain uh, uh, nationality or place. Uh, but yeah, but it, so it, in that case, in that sense, it is a religious test, um, because a religious test was also a political test and a national ethnic test. So what I right, so what I'm saying about it is, I think that it's it to me is the same as saying, um, do you uh, do you basically accept the rule of law? Right. In other words, if you move to a country, do you? Do you accept? Do you agree to live by the dictates of the Constitution? If you if you come to America, do you agree to live by the dictates of the Constitution, right? Um, do you uh, do you uh, do you agree to follow the laws of the land, right? In general, right? So I think that I think that to me is the is the parallel in our in our context. I mean, you could say that it's a religious test. You could say, um, but I think that that it's actually. I mean, it's a pretty basic religious test, right? So the basic religious test here is. Um, uh, um, I'm trying to think of what it would be equivalent to in our time. Um, uh, do you, you know, uh, yeah, right. Do you agree? In, right. Do you agree? And yeah. So I think that that I think that that's based on a um, uh, I'm going to say this bluntly, but I mean it respectfully. Okay, um, I, I think it's based on a on a on a misunderstanding of uh, of Islam and also a misread of uh, of history. Okay, so um, uh, because the the same exact question in the same exact terms was posed about Jews who immigrated to this country and Catholics and probably lots of other religious traditions too, because we come from traditions that first are outside the, the mainstream of the dominant culture. So there's a, there's, a, there's a general sort of lack of knowledge about how it works. Um, but, uh, but also uh, traditions that have uh, uh, strong undercurrents of obedience uh, of, uh, for rituals and practices and things like that. Right, that you don't really have in the same way in Protestantism. Um, so Protestantism lends itself to the separation of church and state a lot more cleanly, I think, in some ways, despite the behavior of some Protestants today, um, uh, uh, a lot more cleanly in some ways than does uh, Islam or Judaism or Catholicism, etc. Um, but what I so but what I would and, and and I would even say for myself that um, as a 
as somebody who is a practitioner of traditional Judaism and observant of Jewish law, um, that in general, um, there, isn't a, uh, there isn't a conflict, right? And in general, in places where there is no conflict, uh, the law of the land is the law. But in places where there is a conflict, uh, Jewish law actually lays out uh, pretty clearly the, the, the criteria and thought process for determining when you are duty-bound to obey Jewish law in defiance of the civil law, and when you're duty-bound to set aside loyalty to Jewish law uh, in acceptance of the civil law. Right? So the same uh, principles exist in Islam, the same principles exist in Catholicism and in other traditions too. So there are places where, sorry. Well, first of all, there are Protestants that don't agree about uh, women's rights in the same way, right? Yeah. Right, so, so the, the Constitution at the moment doesn't have an Equal Rights Amendment, right? So the Constitution at the moment is actually somewhat silent on, in, in private company, what the, uh, uh, the, the equal status of women is. So in my, in my household or in my family, right, um, uh, the Constitution actually doesn't really dictate uh, uh, the, the relative status of my wife versus me. And I think that you know, there, there are plenty of people who, who see themselves as you know, sort of good constitutionalist, loyal Americans um, that have a family dynamic that I see as um, appallingly chauvinistic. You know, so, um, uh, right. So, uh, um, so you know, th I mean, this, this is a really complicated question when it comes to the nature of religious law and also the nature of, uh, of American law. Um, but basically, the, the, the underlying premise of American law is uh, that... Um, uh, the, the principle of harm or the uh, or the um, uh, 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 doing something that curtails somebody else's constitutional rights that is what ends up being against the law right but as long as you're not doing that you're actually free to do whatever you want right so um, so it would be a problem if um, if if someone came to this country right and uh, and said you know um, not only am I going to practice my religion a certain way, I'm also going to go around expecting that other people live their life in the, according to the dictates of, of my religion uh, in an interpersonal way. That doesn't mean, by the way, that you can't, you know, when you go into the voting booth, say, this person who I want to vote for uh, wants to enact a law or, or, or advance a constitutional amendment that forces other people to live according to the dictates of my religion. Uh, evangelical Christians do that all the time. Right. Um, and Jews do it all the time and Muslims do it all the time and Catholics do it all the time. Right. I, I think that's to be expected because our religions inform our uh, our values, our ethics, our sense of what a good society is. Right. So that's actually in some ways an appropriate place for uh, for religion to influence the law of the land. I don't think that we would say to a Jew, when you go into the voting booth, you can't vote uh, according to Jewish values. Right. So I also wouldn't say that to a Muslim. Um, what I can say to a Muslim is you can't force your wife to wear a hijab if she doesn't want to wear a hijab, right? Um, hmm? Because American law would, would, would say that, that 
uh, was coercion. No, no, no. Uh, it's not an individual's personal. If the woman wants to wear a hijab, then I can't. Then, then, uh, um, then she has a then she has a right to do it, right? Um, in the same way that I can't force my wife to wear uh, a dress all the time. Um, not that I want to, but right. But if she wants to wear a dress all the time, and that's a, the way she's living her religion, the law gives her that right, right? Um, but now. It all depends on you know. Like, okay, so I can't force her, but if I if I do force her, you know, she has choices. She can press charges against me for what's the nature of my forcing her? Am I physically forcing her? Right? Um, you know, is uh, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, right? So uh, is she is she pressing charges against me? Right? So those are all questions, right? So I, the terminology can is is a is a challenging term. Can't. Right. 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 But that, but what I'm what what I, what I'm saying is. Um, that to me is not a, a, a prima facie religious test of a person, right? That is uh, the the question is whether they uh, whether whether a person um, is prepared to live by the law of the land um, as a general rule, right? right? Well, there, there's not, but there's not in Judaism. There, there's not in Judaism either. Um, you know, so, uh, I mean, yeah. Um, but also, there's, I mean, there's the, 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 notion, the notion that there's a clear separation of, of church and state within the religious values of any particular religion um, is, uh, is, is, is not inherent, right? So Jesus says, you know, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. Um, and often that's interpreted by many Christians to mean that, that, uh, um, that we follow the secular law, right? And, and we follow, uh, where, 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 you know, and we follow God's law where it doesn't conflict. But the question is where those things conflict and what takes pre precedence and priority when those things conflict, right? So, we have this all the time, right? Christians suing the government because the government forces uh, you to provide uh, abortion benefits in your health care plan, okay? Or and Christians deliberately deciding not to do that. Or Martin Luther King defying uh, segregation uh, because of his sense of what God's law dictates, right? That's what he said in the letter from Birmingham jail. Why is that clear? If the, if what we're if if the separation of church and state was clear, then I would be duty bound to what? We have religious liberties, but also the Yeah, but what I'm saying is that the uh, the, the the question of religious liberty. What's that? Right. The question of religious liberty is actually a more complicated question than than, than we're pointing out. And what and what I'm saying is that regardless of religion. Okay, this is true of Islam, Judaism, Christianity, Hinduism, Buddha, maybe everything except for Buddhism, um, right? That, um, that there is a, uh, an internal religious conversation that always takes place within those religions and among the individual practitioners of each of those religions about uh, what to do when one perceives that the civil law dictates something that violates 
a principle of one's religion. Right? And so that's where the separation of church and state gets really thorny. Okay? So, yes, the, the separation of church and state means that the government can't establish a state religion. And it means that everybody has the free exercise of their own religion. Um, and I actually think that if you were to ask 10 Muslims the question of whether they agree with the premise that the government shouldn't establish a state religion and that every person in the country should be free to practice their own religion, I, nine and a half Muslims would say yes. Okay? The same way that nine and a half, I, 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 I'm prepared to say 10, but I don't want to be so bold because I'm recording this, whatever. Right? Because um, I think that 10 Jews would say yes. I think that 10 Christians would say yes. I think 10 Muslims would say yes. Right? The question is, what constitutes a violation of the state establishment of religion, right? What, what constitutes a violation of the free exercise of religion, right? What kinds of practices uh, make it such that my free exercises of religion impinges on your free exercise of religion? Those are, those are important questions uh, for the law, but they aren't in violation of the general acceptance of the general premise of what the law says, right? Um, so I, I, um, so that's the, that's the, in terms of the separation of church and state, but in terms of, 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 of living in, in a society and committing oneself to, uh, following the laws of that society, to paying taxes, uh, to, uh, uh, to not impinging on other people's rights, et cetera. Um, I think that there is a, there's a reasonable expectation of the, uh, of the, um, of, uh, of, of the country that somebody coming to live here is prepared to follow the laws of the land. Um, the question is whether that needs to be a prima facie test of anybody coming in or whether that's something that ought to be done in the event that laws are violated. My sense is uh, that contrary to what Ibn Ezra says here, um, my sense is that... Uh, um, and remember, Ibn Ezra is, is way post-biblical, okay? And he's the only voice that I actually saw this in. Um, so Ibn Ezra might say that before a person is granted permanent residency in a place, you need to ask them, are they prepared uh, to give up worshiping idols? Right? That would be the equivalent, I guess, of saying to somebody before they come and live here, are you prepared to, uh, to, to abide by the laws of, of the country? In general, though, I don't see that as being a part of the uh, of the biblical rabbinic conception of of immigration. I see that as something that happens after the fact. If a, the uh, presumption is, if a person comes and lives in your country, they're going to be bound by the laws of that country uh, because they're living there and they're going to be bound by them, right? Because you have enforcement mechanisms, and if they violate them, they're going to be subject to the penalties of the law. Um, now, the question that Judaism asks more is, do they have the same protections under the law, immigrants, that native-born population does? That's what the Bible's more concerned with, right? The Bible's not really preoccupied at all with the question of, you know, whether you need to check if they're going to see themselves as being bound by your laws because there's enforcement mechanisms. It does see Pharaoh as being concerned with that question. It does see Haman as being concerned with that question. So that might indicate to me where in general the tradition comes down on questions of should there be uh, upfront tests of loyalty before a person's allowed residency in, in a country.
So you, let's just finish what. Right, so what I'm saying is that I think that in general Judaism sees that as an ex post facto law enforcement question rather than a, uh, than a prima facie uh, what? Criteria. criteria for entry, right? So you'll live by the laws because we'll make you live by the laws once you're here, right? But we're not going to deny you entry uh, uh, until we know whether you live by the laws. So this is just uh, what, um, what Ibn Ezra continues to say here, because I think that this is re the real thrust of it, okay? Um, you cannot oppress him in your country or land because you are more powerful than him. And remember, you were strangers like him. In the same way that the text reminds you that the stranger does not have power, so too the widow and the orphans, who are Israelites, have no power. And after the text says, you shall not wrong, it uses the plural form, but then it says, if you do wrong them, it uses the sim singular. This is because... Whoever sees a person oppressing an orphan or a widow and does not help the orphan and the widow, he too is considered an oppressor. In other words, so if you, not only if you are actively engaged in an act of oppression against a widow, orphan, or, or, or sojourner, but if you see oppression happening and don't do anything about it, the law treats you the same as if you had done it yourself.